Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. I'll never forget the first time I discovered the work of Mary Catron Zoo. It was in London in 2008, I believe, and I just happened to wander into a room where a rack of her now famous perfume bottle printed dresses were on display. On hand was her mother, who was proudly showing off the stunning creations her daughter had dreamt up. And Mary's mother had every right to be proud. Her work was unlike anything else going on in fashion at that time. Advancements in printing and computer technology had made it possible for this young woman to create architectural designs on fluid fabrics, blending beautifully her passion for interior designs and her studies in the field of architecture at Rhode Island School of Design with her Bachelor of Arts in Textile Design and her Master's in Fashion at Central St. Martin's. But it wasn't just the print work that set Mary apart from the pack. It was that combined with her choice of vibrant rainbow colorways. The the result was a collection that was a harbinger of the 2010's colorful print fashion revolution. Since she started her signature brand in 2008, Mary, who was born in Athens, Greece, has found a way to modernize trompe l'oeil, help women fall in love with print and color again, and showed the world that clashing aesthetics can be boldly feminine and empowering. This is why powerful women like Michelle Obama, Kate Blanchett, Beyonce, Lizzo, Jane Fonda, and Zendaya have all flocked to her creations. But Mary's success goes far beyond her ability to reinvent her core design principles every season. She's a very savvy businesswoman who saw early on in her career the power that collaborating with other creatives and brands could have in expanding her reach and her name recognition. Her recent partnership with the high jewelry company Bulgari on a limited edition line of bags is a perfect example of this. So is her work with Victoria's Secret, Longchamp, Topshop, and Adidas Original. And her recent decision to create the size-inclusive year-round holiday capsule collection called Mary Mare also is indicative of how Mary is able to deftly read the fashion tea leaves as the industry shifts away from seasonal shows and moves into a space where smaller drops throughout the year feels more in keeping with the times that we live in. With over a decade in fashion, Mary Catronzu is still innovating and challenging herself as a creative, and her devoted clients couldn't be happier. Mary, thank you so much for talking with me today for Fashion Your Seatbelt. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Me too. Well, Every time I do these podcasts, I always ask the people I'm speaking with, the people I'm interviewing to like, take me back to the beginning. Talk to me about those origin stories. Tell me what your first connection to the world of fashion was for you. It, you know, it, it never was a, a straightforward connection. I never remember myself, you know, looking at fashion or being interested in fashion when I was a lot younger. I was creative. I used to paint a lot. I used to doodle endlessly um, in class. So I was creative in that way, but I, I don't think I thought of fashion as uh, a possible career path just because it wasn't really as developed in Greece at the time that I was growing up. So, you know, I grew up around 
sound design because my mother uh, is an interior designer. So the magazines and the references and everything that I was, you know, surrounded with was more, you know, architectural digest world of interiors more than, you know, fashion mags. So I think, you know, for me, it happened very naturally and gradually. I, I first went to RISD to study architecture at, you know, at the time, um, I was always strong in color and there was an opportunity between uh, RISD and Central St. Martins to do an exchange program, which I did. And I remember the only course available for the semester that I wanted to be in London was textile design. I saw it as another way of looking at surface design applied to interiors more than anything that would potentially lead me to fashion. So I did that uh, semester abroad. I was really, you know, kind of overwhelmed with a different educational system. But what I loved was the freedom to really explore different disciplines. And even though it was textiles, it was kind of split into knitting, weaving and printing. So I did the print pathway. And I think that's how it started just because everyone else, all my classmates were applying textiles and textile design to fashion. But it still wasn't until my graduate project um, that I decided to, you know, um, after I, I actually, I think I skipped a, a chapter here, after I decided that I uh, wanted to stay in London and stay at Central St. Martins. And so I transferred into that BA. Okay. Um, it was still, it wasn't still um, up until my graduate project where I decided to do a project all really around the female figure. Um, and that's how it all started. Then I applied for uh, Royal College of Art in Central St. Martins. And I think as soon as I made the decision to uh, go into Central St. Martins, that was pretty much a decision of choosing fashion because it was Louise Wilson's course. Oh, wow. um, and really that was fashion bootcamp. So, but up until that point, I don't think it was until my master's that I even contemplated fashion. So sorry for the very long. Um, no, 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 it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> and, and tell me about, the, while. you know, because people who are, you know, fashion nerds know who Louise Wilson is, but maybe for somebody a little bit who, who doesn't yes. have that backstory a little bit. I mean, she is a, a reference. So what, tell me about kind of the impact that she had in her life and, you know, who, what she represents in the fashion industry. To me, you know, to me, she was a, a huge mentor. Um, and up until this day, because sadly she passed uh, a few yeah. years ago now, I think about every single thing she she taught me. And, you know, she is notorious. Um, <laughs> she she, <laughs> she has formed the careers of so many fashion designers um, that came before me. So I think that was really the intrigue um, to really see, you know, through her eye, if she would see something in me that is credible enough for me to forge my own path and and start my own brand because at that stage I didn't even have that ambition you know I thought I would work for a fashion house or maybe I would come back to Greece and you know go back to interiors Um, I really didn't know but she is one of the few people in my life um, and I think in a lot of fashion designers life coming out of London and coming out of uh, UK's education that she really morph them into who they are and it's it wasn't for me only creatively also as a person to be able to stand behind your work to have the strength of your own conviction Mm -hmm. to be mature enough uh, to start your own brand Um, she she was extremely tough but she had an uh, incredibly discerning eye 
and she really, you know, builds you up. I think, you know, you, you need to develop a tough skin, I think, if you want to start your own brand. And within two years, she really did that for all of us. Well, I, I think that's interesting also, because when we're talking about when you launched your brand, I mean, when we go back and look at that time over a decade ago, when you launched your brand with that first, and I'll never forget it, the, you know, the perfume bottle collection, you know, where all of the prints were were inspired by the curves of a perfume bottle, then shaping the curves of the the, the bodies of the women wearing them that kind of printing and color and all of that was really not what was happening in fashion. No, um, not, not at I'm, all. So what was that like for you to be so completely outside of the norm? And, and, you know, do you think that was the good thing or, or how did you feel about, you know, presenting something that was really, really not what was fashion was about at that time? I don't, I, I don't really think I had the understanding that it was really uh, so it's outside of everything that was happening at the time because we entered this very naively and it's almost as if you've been institutionalized for all these years in education not really being in touch with you know what's a fashion trend or what what is happening in the fashion landscape at that moment in time you really have the time within your own bubble to build your own world and that's where Louise was incredible you know um, she was uh, it was very hard and she was very tough to please um but i remember when i showed her my uh, graduate project which it which was um this idea of taking trompe prints and recreating these uh, oversized jewelry pieces on these jersey bonded dresses that you wouldn't be able to wear if they were real and i remember uh, her looking at me and saying i've never seen anything like this before this is something new and at that moment, just, you know, in those words, she gave you the confidence uh, that you need to, to be able to, you know, feel that there is um, a level of innovation in your work that you have to stand behind. And I think that's how I felt going out um, from Central St. Martins, that, you know, there's something novel in my work. And, you know, it's not for everyone. It's very distinctive. But that was the point of difference. And I think that's why I was really fortunate enough to have incredible uh, boutiques pick up my first uh, collection, the perfume bottle collection that you were talking about, mm -hmm. because it was at a time where it was in the middle of the recession. Um, I think Lem Lehman Brothers had just collapsed. It was, you know, probably the worst time to start your own fashion business. But again, I was so naive that because I was presenting something new and because we didn't have, you know, as young designers, any uh, minimums to impose to stores, they had the opportunity to bring a little bit of newness, you know, buy a few pieces, see the reactions from their clients. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we, we grew with them. So I think that was what was incredible that I had stores like uh, Browns in London and Colette in Paris, Joyce in Hong Kong, pick up that first collection. And that's what really introduced my work beyond press. Yeah. Um, it was being in store, being, you know, seen, being worn. And it was so taboo, as you said, you know, wearing color on the red carpet, digital printing was so sterile before yeah, I mean, that. I, mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to, I want to underline the fact that when you, you were, were the uh, spearheading a revolution within the fashion industry, your arrival on the fashion scene, I, I don't want to 
undersell or, or, or indicate how powerful your arrival. And then, you know, your, some of your counterparts, Erdem and others, but you were yeah. clearly, you know, you know, the, the tip of the sword or the spear, as far as, you know, this movement into digital printing color, um, you know, the pattern, uh, all of that, that we now take for granted within fashion, which was so not the, the situation. That no, no, it really not. wasn't. And I think we were all oblivious to it. And talking about my, my peers, I think what was incredible was there was a movement coming out of London where textile design yeah. or, you know, let's say um, applied design on, on a garment was part of a movement that was happening, which was a new generation, new crop of designers coming out of London where they could group us together when they would buy our collections uh, for department stores. So there was strength in numbers and there was strength in, you know, uh, bringing a little bit more joy in design and opening up this idea of digital craftsmanship, which, you know, is, is kind of how my work evolved. It started as straight up uh, digital print, as you said, very bold, very graphic and definitive of a woman's uh, silhouette. Um, and then it became about using image as a tool to uh, develop our own jacquards, our own lace, our own embroideries, all, you know, uh, originating from um, an image of inspiration, uh, but at the same time, really challenging old craftsmanship, you know, really looking at how we can digitize old looms and do incredible things. And there I was lucky that this digital revolution was taking shape um, in a way where I wasn't alone. And it became, you know, more than a trend. It really became a huge part, I think, of the two. 2010 to 2015, um, yeah. those five years, I think, probably. Yeah. Um, it was a, I, a, a hugely radical change. I mean, you were like the, I don't know, the the tech version of the Antwerp 6, you know, tech, yeah. you know, <laughs> modernization, you know, like you, I, you it's, it's really like, for me, it really is that a kind of, you can really see a shift in, in aesthetics and, and thinking with, with your arrival. I You did talk a little bit about um, how you use technology to kind of grow from that baseline because you could there was that risk of okay this is a great concept but how do you um evolve how do you scale this yeah. idea and you you kind of went into that and but i to to kind of continue with that idea i wanted to talk to you about that creative process for you because i know some designers are all about draping but i mean like you said it was very tech and digital so i wanted to hear about your your thought process how do you come up with a collect collection what is do you work in a collaborative way or are you somebody who's off in a corner sketching madly? I mean, what is your way of, of creating your collections? I think, you know, you know, that was, a, again, uh, for me, it was a, such a huge learning curve because I'd never studied fashion. You know, even though yeah. my master's was in print for fashion, I never studied fashion. So, you know, for me, starting my own brand, again, incredibly uh, naive move <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I had, you know, no patent cutting skills. So I think for me, you know, starting out, it was really taking inspiration from an image and creating these intricate collages on the body in Photoshop where I would, you know, try to realize what a look would look like. And then, you know, working with a pattern cutter, um, they would take the print and we would discuss those lines because, you know, the print 
had to be accommodated. You know, I, when I started, that was really what defined the silhouette. And um, I, for me, it became as definitive as a cut or a drape for another designer. But then, you know, as um, I, you know, I worked alongside patent cutters and the team grew, even though, you know, I can't flat patent cut, I can drape on a model. And, you know, now I work very differently in that, you know, in many cases, uh, a silhouette is more definitive than a print or than the textile itself. And then, you know, we complement that um, with the fabrics we choose um, or the fabrics we create. So I think it started where the print defined everything in a collection. And then gradually I became a lot more hands-on in fitting. So for me, you know, a collection would take shape at the time of a fitting where I could, you know, work um, on my own with a toile on a model um, and with a pattern cutter really by my side telling me what is and isn't possible. But when I first started, I didn't even understand the need for darts on a dress. You know, for me, it was <laughs> as flat as a dress can be to accommodate the print. Yeah. Um, what do you mean hips? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean fast? <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously, uh, I, I, my, my way uh, of working has evolved a lot. But, you know, I even I remember in early reviews, Sarah Mower mentioning that I'm the I think she said the Michelangelo of Photoshop. <laughs> I think that's a great I think that's the, a great tagline for you. I think that's I think yes, that's Sarah. for sure. It, um, it's interesting she, she mentioned um, Michelangelo because um, I do want to ask about uh, you, how you've been able to weave in your your Greek heritage. I, I know you've woven in this idea of the architecture and the interior into your work. Yeah. But talk to me about how, you know, maybe on face value and maybe more profoundly, you've been weaving your Greek heritage into the work that you do. Um, I, you know, I didn't realize, you know, how strong those influences are. And I couldn't see it in my work, even though, you know, you could see uh, shapes of jewelry, even in my first collection that mimicked an amphoria shape. Um, and even though I, you know, I uh, presented a collection that was based on this um, kind of interplay between um, ancient uh, Greek art and op art. Um, so, you know, there have been clear references of Greek culture in my work. I think looking at it now, it's more about the importance of narrative, you know, that I realize is is my Greekness and, and you know, my upbringing, you know, this importance of the word idea in my work, because these collections, even now that are, they, they tend to be more abstract, they've always been very thematic. And it's always about creating my own narrative that hopefully pushes the boundaries of what's uh, considered desirable um, mm -hmm. in fashion, um, even if it feels uncomfortable at the time. I think, you know, that doubt is sometimes a, sa a sign of breaking new ground. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my Greekness, apart from this sense of balance and symmetry, which has always been part of my work, it's, it's really um, about a strong narrative and a strong idea that really holds the, the gravity of each collection and, and inspires me personally. I think, you know, when we don't have a strong theme for a collection, we tend to kind of not stay as focused. So I don't know how to tell I, good stories for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I storytelling is, you know, even if you think about ancient mythology, um, Greek mythology, it, it's so important to Greeks that it's so intrinsic in our nature, you don't even realize. So I think it was kind of, uh, 
let's say explored um, as, uh, as as clearly as we could in the the last collection that we did at the Temple of Poseidon in Greece. Yes. The entire uh, collection was inspired by ideas that were birthed at the same time that the temple was built around 450 BC, and that for me, you know, really allowed me to create and design a collection that is abs- as abstract as the Pythagorean theorem, as mm. abstract as the notion of the word chaos. Mm. And yet, when you look at it, you do see Greek references. So I think my work now perhaps is less literal than it was when it started, but it's um, always uh, thematic and it's, let's say, always image-led. Okay, well, so moving from ancient Greek to the the future and the metaverse, because somebody who's so comfortable with the the digital and designing, you know, uh, online as opposed to in, you know, IRL. Yeah. (laughs) What what are your thoughts about, you know, this whole NFT metaverse, you know, having fashion pieces for your for your online avatars? Like what what are your thoughts about all of this that's going on right now? And where do you want to place yourself within that virtual world? I think it's just, you know, one more facet that um, allows, you know, fashion to communicate around the world, you know, in a, in a less maybe tangible way, but one that allows your imagination to kind of roam free. So I think it's so interesting to see, you know, um, so many iterations of how you can wear clothes, style clothes create your own persona, create your own identity. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of hand in hand, you know, it's kind of going back to when I started, it was on the one hand, the advances in technology that allowed us to really push forward. At the same time, there was an entire digital revolution that was happening with the birth of social media. So those two things were happening hand in hand and one could, let's say, inspire another. And I think now um, where we're faced with a completely uh, changing uh, environment with completely different, I think, uh, a completely different value system where everyone can work remotely, everyone can create collections virtually. Mm -hmm. That also goes in hand in hand with what you're saying, you know, all the different iterations of branding that are happening. So I think it's really interesting, especially for designers um, starting out now because they can really have the tools in their hand uh, to to kind of showcase their talent in many different ways and reach many different audiences that maybe was a little bit more singular when I started. The final line of your answer there leads perfectly into this kind of next series of questions I want to talk to you about because I find it so intriguing the the partnerships and the and the you know touching new new uh, centers of interest or people, you know, people who are maybe not super focused in fashion or less focused in fashion, you're, you know, I've seen that you, you're, or in different aspects of fashion. So you've recently Mm -hmm. done an amazing um, collaboration. I'm completely in love. You know, this is me oversharing with your... (laughs) Your bag that you did, your bags that you've done in Bulgari. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've also, you know, done, uh, you know, something with the Bloomingdale's private label um, going into children's wear. And then you have your, you know, Mary Mare resort collection. So I'm, this is, talk to me about all of these things, because I feel like this is such a great way, particularly at a brand who's in this, 
you know, you're no longer the young kid anymore and you're not the, you know, you know, the August house either. You're in this kind of, yeah. you know, older teenage years. And so you still need to keep <laughs> yourself relevant and, 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 you know, activate new people. So I really want to talk about this strategy and this thinking, what drew you to these different projects? Cause I think it's a great blueprint for other brands kind of coming into this, this part of their career and lifespan of their company. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, I think um, if if this year has taught uh, me personally anything is that um, I think I and I truly believe this, that the future of fashion really is in collaboration um, and that can be interpreted in many different ways. But, you know, going back to what you were talking about, it's it's been a big part of, you know, my brand from its inception to collaborate. You know, it's not um, that it was uh, a newfound freedom now to collaborate. And, and, and ensure that those collaborations are diverse and different to each other. But I always picked collaborations where I felt that I'm either learning something new or, and, and always working with a leader in their field mm-hmm. um, in order really to be able to tap into a new product category that we would never be able to do on our own. Uh, but in many cases, also doing, you know, working on collaborations that don't have a commercial value, but really allow me to creatively challenge myself. Mm-hmm. So I was really fortunate um, that, you know, with Bulgari, it was a, a relationship that was really built and initiated at the Temple of Poseidon show where they lent us their incredible high jewelry to showcase alongside the collection in Greece. And um, it really felt authentic because of the origins of their founder, Sotirios Bulgari. So it felt like a homecoming for me in a way showing in Greece, but it also uh, was, I think, uh, a way to celebrate their uh, Greek-Roman roots. So that collaboration is, you know, one of those collaborations that I've really enjoyed because it started there then I was invited to design Serpenti through the eyes of Capsule. And then we were also approached by their fragrance department to do our own uh, Omnia perfume. So um, it's one of those cases where you really have the time to study the codes of a brand and really feel part of the Bulgari family. And so the design itself feels, I think, perhaps oh, it has, you have the right, the adequate an, amount of time that you need to design something that is uh, a true synergy between their DNA and my DNA. So I'm very glad you like the Bulgari. Um, yeah, I, it's a, dangerously so. My husband... <laughs> My husband's going to have a, a rude awakening at some point, I think, with the with the bill at the end of the month with the credit card. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. You know, it's honestly, it's something that um, was the most unorthodox collaboration because it was done entirely uh, during the pandemic. We were never able to visit each other. So um, I was actually able initially to visit their historical archive in Rome. And, you know, uh, of course, that gave me ample inspiration. But beyond that, we started designing it in the midst of lockdown. So we never got the chance to meet their development team. Um, it was all about, you know, Zoom after Zoom to to correct the, the most, you know, detailed elements of the uh, prototyping process. Um, but why I'm saying all that about Bulgari is that usually um, as a brand, when we, we did a collaboration, it was either a one season or max a two season collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I see changing now and um, what the pandemic has taught me is the importance of allowing yourself time 
mm. um, with what you're doing uh, within your brand to have long-term partnership like the one with Bulgari because you really have the time to go deeper and the designs that come out of that are much more considered for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to afford ourselves the luxury of time when we talk about collaborations. And as you mentioned, you know, Bloomingdale's Aqua, um, again, was something that we decided to do because it really offered us the opportunity at that time to really look at plus sizing, which is something that we hadn't yet launched in Mary Mary. Mm -hmm. So I felt we could learn a lot um, from the teams that they had just launched Curve. And also because it was girls sizing, you know, yeah. we never had that part um, uh, you know, even though I've seen, you know, um, girls or teenagers with their moms both wearing my work, mm -hmm. um, it's very different to design for that and know that, you know, they are uh, targeting and they already have an audience um, of that age uh, group. So, you know, to me, it really goes back to what we're talking about, the diversity between the projects that keep you creatively inspired, mm -hmm. uh, but also for the future, the opportunity to allow yourself the time to create deeper and more meaningful collaborations where it's not a one shot, it's not a one night stand. Um, well, it's, it's more really like a true relationship. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you bring up the sizing aspect because that was another question I wanted to talk to you about. You know, you know, going to children's, there, there is that whole, like, you know, that's a whole other area, you know, revenue stream. And then plus size, I think, is completely untapped as a, as a market. You know, I mean, I know you've gone into it and, it, yeah. and I think that's so smart. And I know that um, I, I just think financially that both going in, you know, going into those two sections makes a whole lot of business sense. Um, no, no, it absolutely does. And I think we're all afraid initially because we, we, we don't have enough information. So it's something I've wanted to do uh, for years because I feel it's important to really represent um, all sizes in a collection. Um, but, you know, there was always the fear because uh, my work is so based on print and the production of the print itself happens per size. Mm -hmm. um, that if we didn't have the adequate demand from stores, we wouldn't be able to sustain it. Mm -hmm. So um, in the end, we never saw enough demand from stores. So we had to initiate it mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of back it by saying, look, we will really go up to a size 24 um, in UK sizing, which I think is a size 20 uh, US. Which is um, huge, which is... A, which which is yeah. Yes, we're not huge in size, but like it's a big, it's a big deal to do something like that. I think, you know, it, you have to do it properly. So it's not like we did it without really taking the time. It was probably a year in development. But why we launched it with Mary Mary um, was because Mary Mary is based on uh, specific silhouettes um, that are carry forward season to season silhouettes that really have been um, very successful for us um, in the past. So when you have a core of a collection that you can grade it up to that size and then as newness comes in you grade you know the individual styles that are new um you have a strong foundation um already whereas in our ready to wear show collections every single piece is so different to the season before that yeah. the development itself to create a, a sizing that is accurate because there's one thing to say you're going up to size uk24 um and it's another thing for a woman who is that size to feel that it fits perfectly on her body so we i i think we needed the 
time um, to to really study the grading and make sure um, it's tested across different body shapes and not only different sizes. And so, you know, we were so happy when we discovered that big wholesale partners of ours uh, bought into those sizes and they were uh, the first sizes to sell out. So clearly there is a demand. And I think the more designers kind of front that move, the more stores um, will see the, the, the demand from their own audience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's really powerful that you're leading the way. I remember being so excited because I am I'm definitely not a size zero, and to see some of your pieces on um, Eleven Honoré, and of course yeah. your own pieces, like you mentioned, it's representing you know the full breadth and width of of how women look and and um, you know feel. So I thought that that was wonderful. And tell me, but just I want to dive a little bit deeper into the thought process behind this because it's considered a resort line, and and you know there are you know, companies that go, okay, so this is, although they, you know, like Valentino and then there's Valentino Red. So there's like, but that's not the approach that I feel that's going on with this. This feels very, very different. And it's, you know, it's not a secondary line per se. It's a really different mindset, but can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, it's not a secondary line. And um, I think, you know, the intention behind it was different. And that's why um, it, it really became about an all year round resort wear. And really the thought behind it uh, before even the pandemic and before we really kind of um, addressed how relentless the pace of fashion was, it was really a reaction to say we want a collection that is so distinctive of the brand that is all year round and doesn't go into markdown. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is seasonless. So obviously the occasion you wear it, there's a specificity to that. You know, it doesn't have to be on the beach, but it's clearly for when you're on holiday or around warm weather, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's a set, certain ease um, to the collection itself. And also it highlights uh, prints that have been definitive of uh, the brand. So, you know, the intention really behind it is how do we create a collection that is so connected to the ethos of the brand that is all year round that doesn't go into markdown and there is no uh you know uh need uh for a new collection every two months or every three months how do we create a collection that will be relevant uh whenever you buy it and will stay in your wardrobe forever so that was the true intention behind it and then it was really about having a truly inclusive in terms of size collection and also only using a certain a range of fabrics, all natural fabrics that take print well, that are very comfortable to wear in the heat. Um, so that really was the intention. And also sil- silhouettes that are very democratic and uh, easy to style and easy to wear. So the intention behind it was not a, one of a price point drop per se, even though there is, you know, a more specific range price point wise, you know, it doesn't go as broad as um, my ready to wear collection in that way. So, you know, you do find pieces that are more affordable just by default because of the nature of the collection, but it wasn't really, really, really smart. And I also think that 
you know, this leads into my question about kind of where you're seeing the 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 state of the state of play of fashion in general now that we're kind of on the you know the tail end of the pandemic. Knock on wood, because you know I, I want to talk to you about where where you feel things are because you kind of mentioned more of a sustainable approach to it that it's year round that it stays in your wardrobe that it doesn't you know doesn't go out of style quote unquote. You know, I feel like there's a real shift on a lot of different levels about people buying less and better, and then there's also this whole move to you know D to C direct to consumer and sustainability. So I feel like there's a lot of shifting, a lot of people reconsidering how they want to do things. And I feel like that that particular, you know, uh, label really fits nicely into this new world order of fashion. But I wanted to get your thoughts about what you feel in relationship to all of these new shifting ideas about seasonless, about no shows, about digital, uh, you know, about direct to consumer and bypassing, you know, stores altogether, all that kind of stuff. I know it's a very broad question, but kind of what comes up for you about what you're feeling about where we're going from here? Um, I think, you know, um, it's, it's a little bit more clear now. It's still very difficult to say, um, exactly when the dust settles, um, exactly the, environment we'll find ourselves in but definitely it's it's been long enough that it's changed us to our core and there's one thing talking about the sustainability of fabrics and the circularity of fashion there's another thing talking about the sustainability of a brand itself from a human perspective so i think more than anything um this freedom you're picturing or painting um is a freedom for each designer to find what's right for them to not feel you know if i don't show a season uh people will think something is wrong you know and i think we were all in you know this kind of unbreakable uh pace and structure where we didn't feel we can come out of you know we we had to turn more collections we had to uh, try and do you know resort and pre-fall and uh winter and summer and in the end you know there was too much product out there and we all knew that you know there wasn't a designer that didn't think walking into a store or walking to a department store that there's too much product and you know at the end the consumer doesn't even know what collection it came from or you know what it connects to thematically so I think there will be uh, a continuous change for buying better and in the in the same way for a designer it means you know uh, designing better you know not designing as many SKUs even with our second Mary Mary collection was which is um, dropping in stores now the collection itself was probably 50% smaller uh, than our Mary Mary number one. And it wasn't really for any budgetary reasons. It really was because um, looking at what we presented and what people bought, there was so much waste. And so we really thought about which pieces were successful. We really based the collection on that. And I think we were so aware of being more careful um, and less wasteful that we did a very, very strong edit, which, you know, was received extremely well from buyers who also don't have the time anymore to be looking at collections that have, you know, 300 SKUs. So I think there will be a change, you know, to buying better, designing better, wasting less. Um, At the same time, you know, that we have uh, Mary Mary, we also were incredibly fortunate that the collection we showed in Greece um, was my first couture show. And we never really thought it would have any commercial value or it would sell. But from that time, which was um, October, 2019, up until today, we're still receiving bespoke orders from that collection. Wow. Uh, 
And what is incredible is it really kept us going during the pandemic, being uh, very technical, even from a cash flow perspective, it really helped having these clients who really buy these pieces because they appreciate the design, they appreciate the craftsmanship. And even if they don't have an event to go to right now, they want to own that piece. And it's two completely different levels of thinking of forever pieces that stay in your wardrobe when discussing Mary Mary and the Temple of Poseidon show. But really, it's the same denominator. It's really thinking about uh, producing pieces that are forever pieces that are timeless, that are well-made. Um, and I think independent designers, we really have uh, maybe an advantage um, to doing things our own way and talking really about um, where the clothes that we design uh, and produce come from. You know, because when you buy independent, you really don't buy into mass production. And I think it's a distinction that happened in the food industry maybe 15 years ago. And yeah. now it needs to happen in fashion to say, you know, um, this is where this was made. You know, human hands have made this. It took that many hours to make. Um, and this is uh, uh, the the artisanship and the craftsmanship that has gone into this piece that you will hopefully um, cherish for years to come. So that story needs to be told um, so that the magic of fashion is translated into a piece and it's not just a product. So um, let me think of what you asked me in terms no, of- No, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of sitting back <laughs> in my chair kind of gobsmacked by your amazing, thoughtful, insightful uh, answers. And, <laughs> and the, the fact that those really, it, you know, the, the couture and the marimari are two sides of the same coin. And, and I'm, yeah. just, I'm just really kind of letting what you're saying soak in um, uh, to- into me and like how I'm going to kind of use what you're saying in future discussions that I'm having with people because it is kind of like and you said about being an independent designer it's almost like buying buy you know bio you know um yeah buy, buying healthy healthy food if you're buying from an independent designer you're yeah. kind of in that same way you know um helping it's you know. almost like farm to table but we just <laughs> it is find it's the right term <laughs> Um, okay, so that's the perfect note to leave this on. So what I want to do now real quick is ask you the same questions I ask everybody else, which are the five generic fashion questions to kind yeah. of wrap this up. <laughs> so, uh, so, the, so the first of the five questions is, and I'll be interested to hear what you say, uh, what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own that you cherish above all others? Oh my God, that's such a difficult one. Okay, this will be unexpected. But the first time that my dad bought me a, a dress, um, and it was in the 90s, mm -hmm. was, I, I don't even know where he found it, was a Moschino dress. And I don't even think I've worn it ever. I mean, obviously not now, but even not then, <laughs> because it was so bold and kind of out of this world. Uh, but I remember being so intrigued by all the colors and the patterns um, and the graphicness. Um, and also, you know, my dad never really bought me clothes. It was always my mother. So I would have to say that because it's, you know, stayed with me for years. I, I've been tempted to throw it out for years. I never do. And I just remember being kind of in awe of this piece and it was I think just you know a simple jersey dress but the print and the pattern obviously even at that stage and I was probably 12 13 I don't even remember mm -hmm. um really stayed with me clearly it's clearly had yep. some sort of you know subconscious impact on on yes. your and the and the fact that and and for listeners who might not know this Mary as much as she designs prints she is an all black kind of gal you you are very much not <laughs> yes 
print. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. The next question is, you know, we were talking a little bit about this earlier about investment pieces and not everybody has a, a huge budget to put into clothes and there's that whole issue with fast fashion. But if there was a, a garment or a piece that you think that somebody should really save up and buy, you know, quality, what would that piece be? I think that has to be what speaks to everyone, you know, um, what brings you joy. That's always what I say, you know, fashion is here uh, to lift our spirit, to make us feel more comfortable, more confident in wearing it. Um, and it has to be uplifting. I think, you know, I, I, obviously I'm a designer who works with color a lot. So I see color as a wellness tool. So I'm not going to talk about a silhouette. I'm going to talk about, you know, that piece that you think about again and again, and you're not sure if you can afford it, but it kind of stays in your mind. Um, that will bring, you know, um, when you own it because you've loved it for so long, um, uh, joy in your life so I think it's it's you know what where whatever you connect with whatever you feel brings you joy and will lift your your mood and your spirit okay yeah that's a that's a very that's a very good and I've never heard that answer before so I actually really really like it <laughs> um, all right so next question is who is your favorite designer living or dead Jessica that's a, an impossible question it really is an impossible question there's so many you know, and you, you do really respect designers for different reasons. But if I had to see it through a filter of a female designer so I could make it easier for myself, <laughs> there's so many, you know, um, alive. Um, I have so much respect for Mucha Prada. Mm -hmm. I think what she's built, her, you know, in intellect, everything about her um it's incredible you know how much she has formed you know uh, fashion you know through her her own work ray kawakubo um again because she's such a trailblazer and has created a, a whole universe around her work schiaparelli i think you know at the time uh, of schiaparelli what you know she was doing and how uh, how she brought uh art and fashion together um i think is so relevant till this day to this day those are three winners i mean yeah yeah i don't need to go on right <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right second to last question is what trend will you never follow um i don't follow trends i have a uniform of a black dress and i i never really uh go far from that <laughs> so i, I know you I, <laughs> you always bet on black, Mary. You were really—that's your go-to. And you know, I think it's—I uh, get asked um, this a lot because obviously my work is so colorful, um, and I do wear color when I'm on holiday. Strangely, so um, if we ever holiday together, you know that I will wear color and I will wear print. But I find um, black in terms of not having to think uh, and not making any decisions. Um, of what you're wearing, almost like a palette cleanser uh, when you work with so much pattern uh, day to day. Um, it really acts as a uniform and, you know, it's it's never about a trend. It really is always about what you feel comfortable in and what allows you to put all your creativity in your work um, and maybe not have to make that extra decision every day. So I, I, yeah, I don't think it's such a bad thing to follow a bad trend, you know? It's kind of fun looking back at it. So if I was that adventurous uh, uh, shopper or that adventurous fashion person, um, I wouldn't be scared of any trend, to be honest. I would be kind of open to any mistake I would make. But um, 
I've kind of removed that from my equation. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it's good. I mean, like I was saying, I think it's sometimes you, you, one less decision a day is kind of a nice thing to have. So, and, I mean, at times that we were working so hard, I remember going to a restaurant and couldn't even decide if I wanted, uh, you know, a coffee or an orange juice. So, um, you know, you do feel at some point, I think at some point um, when you work and you make that many decisions a day, the relief of not having to make any decisions, you know, having somebody else order for you, having just a, a black dress to wear every day, you know, it's those small things that actually relieve you from yes. all the decisions you have to make. Yeah, absolutely. I feel you. Last question. What do you love most about fashion? Um, I love, you know, how in sync it is with our times. It's really a, such a strong reflection of where we are as a whole, you know, culturally, politically, spiritually many times. So I love how connecting, connected it is to the now um, and how, you know, you can dissect that when you look at kind of past times and um, the fashion of those times. Um, and even though, you know, we were talking about how relentless the speed is, I do love the idea that it's so reactive. You know, fashion is not... Uh, stagnant in any way you know it, it does uh, it does evolve uh, and it is reactionary um and it is revolutionary too um kind of in the same vein so um it's exciting to see where fashion is today how the world is changing around us and how fashion will change with it mm -hmm. no i agree with you i find that fashion to be it's such a great indicator of what the the mindset of the world will be you know in six months time or whatever it's such a yeah. great fortune teller I think, I think, yes. And I think, you know, that uh, freedom of expression that happens through fashion uh, touches so many people, you know, it's, it's really, um, even though it can be elitist, it's still so democratic at the same time in all its levels. So um, it's incredible to see that, you know, across, I don't know, you know, um, a span of 10 years, even how it changes. Yeah, I mean it's it's the one art form that we can we all everyone in the world can participate in, which I yes, think, you know. exactly, exactly, and you know I think even when we talk about uh, the derivatives of fashion and accessible fashion and fast fashion, um, there's so much uh, room for improvement in terms of the uh, the way um, that's produced, uh, but at the same time they do hold the power infiltrating you know a movement of fashion across the masses mm -hmm. so if that didn't exist we wouldn't really be able to reflect on anything um if it just happened um for an elitist group of people or a smaller group of people um but that's not to say that you know there there doesn't need to be a new way of looking at fast fashion it's just the power of it um yeah. you can't deny that absolutely mary i could talk to you all day this is I, guess I feel the same <laughs> we definitely no, it's wonderful we have to get together on our vacation wearing yes. our prints and have yes. some long conversations yes please yes please well you you'll let me know if you uh come to greece um i'll be here for the summer absolutely. i will absolutely let you know for sure but mary yes. thank you so so thank much, you so much. Kiss thank and you. enjoy enjoy the sun in greece yes well enjoy the sun in paris assuming there is Sun? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Great. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss.
Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.